Welcome to Maximize Your Influence, your resource for the top persuasion, influence, and negotiation techniques that will help you maximize your success in life and business. And now, here are your hosts, Kurt Mortensen and Steve Olson. Welcome to another episode of Maximize Your Influence. We're all the way to episode 32. Kurt has hung with me for almost 32 episodes now. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think he can still, you know, stand me. I think he's going to show up for 33. That's where my money is. <laughs> On the big 3-3? Three, three? The big 3-3, three, three. yep, yep. We're going to be like a third of a way to uh, 100. I don't know. Is my math skills. Yeah, well, you got to do a 33 and a third. I guess we could do a third episode. Maybe we just should do it. Next one should be a third episode. Then we're officially 33% there. I think so. I think so. My math skills aren't as polished as my educated English skills. So There you go. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're going to jump right into it because we, we're trying to get our little mini-series, our three-part series on presentation skills wrapped up and give you guys some more good information that you can use to dial in those presentations that you're doing a little bit more. Kurt wants to talk about obese people because they're next on our list to offend. So <laughs> I know that's what our article was. Uh, it's about. me on this on this list because I just got back from uh, a hard place to do presentations, and I did get a little obese when I was in Cozumel. So <laughs> oh boy, it was one of those tough ones where hey, will you come to Cozumel and do a presentation for him? Like well, you know, and it, it's a club; it's all you can eat. Is that okay? And I'm like well, <laughs> so this one. <laughs> Will fit me because I probably ate. Because we have to talk about food and offend people on every call. So I had uh, some great food and some great relaxation. Did some great presentation. Talked to a lot of fun people. But let's talk about this article. It's really interesting. At least again, I think it's interesting. If you're reading the Journal of Preventive Medicine, <laughs> <laughs> you're such a dork. <laughs> yeah, I'll take that one. How about obese patients? It's interesting because these patients. When they feel judged by their doctors, they're less likely to lose weight. So if they feel like the doctor is obese themselves <laughs> or they're judging them, they're less likely to lose weight. Uh -huh. So these, when they felt their doctors were critical of their weight and the way they talked to them, the way they looked at them, the way they were judging them, they were less likely to lose weight than the doctors that were understanding and say, so, you know, millions of people suffer this. I have a hard time with it too. We need to work with this together. Uh, we're less likely to lose weight. In fact, 96% of those who felt judged said they, well, they try to lose weight for a little bit, but after a while, 84% of them failed versus the ones that felt like their doctor actually cared and wasn't judging. And that's a big picture type thing to where that's human nature a lot of times. And we don't like to be judged. We don't like to admit we're obese. And we don't like to admit we need to lose weight. And I think we've all been in that category. I know I have. And the doctor says, concerned about this, it's kind of puts you in a spot. So I thought that was kind of fascinating to well, doctors that really cared and says, we're in this together. I struggle with it too. Let's do this. We're a lot more successful than those who felt judged. And, and I think we need to be careful there too. I think some people are so sensitive about a lot of issues. We're looking for any reason to think we're being judged when a lot of times maybe that wasn't the case. That wasn't the intent, but it came across that way. So the two lessons are, hey, if they're looking for it, they're going to find it. So these patients that felt judged they were feeling that the doctor was judging versus those who felt the support, the, maybe the love, the caring from their doctor versus those who didn't. The interesting point there, at least what I'm taking from it, Dennis, you've got a doctor here. His business is treating obese patients and business is better for him 
<laughs> well, actually, it's better for them if they're always obese, but that's beside the point. <laughs> well, that's all I think. If you always offend, well, it depends if they come back to that doctor or to a different doctor. But if they keep coming back because he keeps offending them, that would be a good business model. Yeah, unless the yeah the doctors have some some kind of cartel of offense where they just agree to offend all of the patients, then they're all better <laughs> off, right? Maybe that's what they're learning in medical school. Or from us, everyone. Yeah. yeah. So the doctor needs to get some results, so the patient keeps coming back. You're a business person. If you're listening to this, you're in sales. And many times our product is meant for somebody who is in a high level of distress or, or who has a problem, like somebody who might be morbidly obese and needs to lose weight. And there has to be a high dose of empathy or her bedside manner there to where they feel like you understand the problem and you relate to it and you feel their pain. The whole Bill Clinton, I feel your pain. And... <laughs> So that, that's what you've got to do in this situation in order to get them to keep coming back. Because if they feel like you're coming from a position, well, look at you, you poor person, you with this horrible problem. I'm better than you and I'm going to save you. That's not the way to go about this. Is that what we're to take from this study? Yep, that's what we take for it. understand when we put someone in a situation like that, there's the denial factor. There's the blow to the self-esteem factor. In fact, I had a family doctor and we're good friends. And this comes up when you talk about dissonance and denial and self-esteem. And I'd been on the road a lot. And as you know, being on the road, there's good food. And the problem with being good food and going to places like Cozumel's, you probably eat too much. And it's hard to stay skinny on the road. You know that. Yeah. Oh, man. Very hard. I've been traveling quite a bit. And I thought I was doing pretty good. You know, I jog when I can. I work out when I can. And doctor come in, again, family friend says, uh, according to your BMI chart, you're obese. I'm like, what? I'm not obese. I don't feel obese. I don't think I look obese. No one's called me obese. So, yeah. You're obese. And of course, I said, well, those BMI charts, they, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they BMI, don't work. And then said, and of course, I tried to deny it. And then he says, well, and you know, my family, we're all, we're pretty big boned. And he looked at me and he had this smirk. He says, have you ever seen a fat skeleton? <laughs> <laughs> Just to kind of put it in perspective, I'm like, oh, I guess I have it. But yeah. again, it's an emotional situation. There's distance, there's denial, there's self-esteem. For feeling judged has the opposite effect for a lot of people. Yeah, But if we're feeling like we're on the same page, hey, I struggle with that too. I had a problem with it too. And my 92% of patients, whatever it is to connect and say, we're on the same page, we're going to do this together versus, ah, you've been eating too much. You're fat. You're fat. <laughs> people feel that way. It's going to have the opposite effect. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think the challenge here, like doctors, for example, they are coming at this from a high perception of credibility, right? The medical degree, the white coat, that whole situation. You've got to play up the credibility in any kind of persuasive encounter, but you can't do it to the degree where you're being condescending, especially when you're solving somebody's problem. I have so much credibility. Look at you, you person with this problem. Let me come in and save you, like I was saying before. You've got to walk that line between, look at me, I have credibility, I know this, I know what I'm doing, and I have empathy and compassion for your situation. That's the optimal outcome here. It is. And to give the person the tools or a game plan, and that's what my doctor says, well, look, this is what you need to do. Try this and do this to where I lost the weight. Because you're just not just scaring people or offending people or judging people. But if they don't know what to do, sure, if they don't know how to lose weight or they've tried before and nothing's worked, but they have a game plan and the tools to how to do it. Now, all of a sudden, you have someone that's supporting you. You have a way to do it. And for me and for most people, it worked out really well. And I lost all that weight and got back to a healthier position. Yeah, yeah, you're off the bad end of that BMI chart now, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm just on the, the sort of bad end, I guess. <laughs> the sort of bad end, yeah. Well, good, good. Thanks for the article, Kurt. That's pretty inter interesting stuff. 
let's head into the home stretch here on our presentation skills series. What do you say? Yeah, let's do it. I love teaching presentation skills. I love doing presentation skills because so many people just don't realize that presenting is not persuading. Yeah, right. It is not, or is it? <laughs> <laughs> or is it? Well, let's put them together. Persuasive presentation. That's what we're looking for. Because you can be persuasive, but when you combine those two worlds, it gets really interesting and you have to really look at the, the systems and the formula you use. I agreed. Agreed. And to date, we've talked about preparing for the presentation, right? What you should do there. We've also talked about our good friend, Tess, and what that means, which is what? Testimonials, examples, statistics, and stories. We've got to weave those in to the presentation. You don't necessarily always know your audience makeup, the personality types, what type of persuasion they relate to the most. So you're throwing all of those out there knowing full well that some people aren't going to relate to certain portions of your presentation, but other parts are definitely going to grab them. So now you could prep your presentation, get your test ready to roll, do all that stuff. But if you get up there to present and you're monotone, you've got no presence and people start heckling you from the audience, this thing is still going to be a bust. And that's what we want to deal with today. How do we convey the correct nonverbals, the, the powerful presence that we need to as a persuasive presenter? And what about the heckler? What if the heckler comes <laughs> along? What do you do about that? And we've, we've touched on that lightly before, but we want to dig in more heavy today. So, Kurt... Tell us about uh, what kind of nonverbals we should be aware of. What, what, are we, what messages are we sending? We all know that your nonverbals speak louder than your words, and people rarely think about that. And you have to look at the big picture. If I'm speaking into an audience, we've talked about ceiling height, the seating arrangement. Are you on a platform? Can they hear your voice comfortably without straining? There are distractions. All these things come into play, a lot of distractions, lighting. Maybe that's another episode, but all those things come into play as far as the nonverbals. Then, of course, there's you and your body. And you have to take a think about not only your body gestures, but your voice. I mean, you talk about the big complaints. I've done a lot of studies and research on this. The big complaints with any type of presentation, speaking in monotone, avoiding eye contact, fidgeting, the famous vocal fillers, um, or, uh, you know, lack of emotion, sounding mechanical, talking down to the audience, maybe it could be overloading the audience with too much information, not listening, seeing nervousness or fear, jumping to conclusions, interrupting, looking arrogant. All these things come into play. So you have to really look at your demeanor, your charisma. Do they notice when you enter the room? Are they listening to you? And the big ones is get away from the podium or the lectern. Get out in front of your audience. Look at your gestures. If you're going to pace and move, fine, but you can't pace back and forth. If you're going to move, stop, own your spot before you move again. Don't put your hands in your pocket. Don't play with your hair. Don't play with the coins in your pocket. You need to have gestures. Make sure your shoulders are squared up with the audience. You have good eye contact. You can move around. That's fine as long as you're mostly squared with the audience with your shoulders. And look at your gestures. Now, the interesting thing about gestures is they're good if you do them the right way. Now, I'm not talking about stand-up comedy or watching, well, Jay Leno, who used to be on. A lot of times, they violate these rules. I'm talking about a, a perfect persuasive presentation. And the studies show that moving, you should move your hands from your hips to your shoulders. It's interesting when people put their hands above their shoulders, it triggers a subconscious response. Any guesses of what that would be? Uh, violence? 
<laughs> makes people uncomfortable because when that hand goes up, someone in the front row might be thinking, my father used to do that. That makes me tense. Yeah. They're not thinking that, but they could be feeling that, right? When that hand goes up. So just gesture from your shoulders to your hips. That's one thing to think about. And here's a big one that a lot of people do. They gesture and they either do a fig leaf. <laughs> What's a fig leaf? I don't know how to verbally describe that, but basically crossing your arms low. Is that how you describe that? So yeah. that's the fig leaf. Yeah, just okay. reverse fig leaf. A lot of people, they gesture, they do a fig leaf, or they kind of put their hands in front of their chest. When they gesture, they come back to their chest. When you gesture, don't put a barrier between you and your audience. Come back down to neutral. Put down your hands to your side. Gesture and come down. Well, you'd be amazed how many people don't realize that every gesture could attract or repel the people you're talking to. So I know it's painful, but record yourself. Look at your gestures. Are you squared up with the audience? Are you doing anything distracting from pulling your fingers? And listeners, you've been taught your whole life not to pull your fingers. <laughs> oh, sorry. Playing with the ring, playing with your hair, playing with an earring. Flipping your hair, all those things, anything that you're doing all the time, like vocal fillers, a few ums here and there, not a big deal. We all use them. But when it's so painful and it's just zapping at you, it distracts from your message. It could be the lights to the air, to the seating, to your gestures, to a podium. All these things attribute to your presence, to your charisma and your ability to persuade and influence. Yeah. I think we talked a few episodes ago on, on the first one on presentation skills about presenting to the mirror, practicing, or, or even videotaping yourself. Because you're going to see what your hands do. Your hands really are the window to whatever discomfort or to how you really feel. Because you, you think about it, they're not super useful when you're standing up in front of a group. The whole primal instinct was we use our hands to work and to produce. And in the information age today, it's our mouth. It's how we talk. And hands can accentuate the message, but they're not always needed. And so when they're not, insecurities come out through the hands and they start doing fidgety little things that show. And I think that registers in the subconscious mind of our audience. It does. I remember I was getting trained by Jim Rohn and Brian Tracy to do some of their presentations, some of their marketing. I had to give a presentation without moving my hands at all. Yeah. <laughs> and that was hard. <laughs> that was eerie. That was freaky because a lot of times where gestures are just way out there. Then from there, adding purposeful gestures. It was tough, but it was good training that I had to really figure out how to use your hands in the right way that really enhances your message. Definitely, definitely. So that's that's a little bit on nonverbals. What if you're up there, you're presenting, and you got the guy that just keeps asking questions, he keeps interrupting, maybe he's drunk and he starts making fun of you or or you know any other thing that could be considered a heckler. I, I guess you know what we should do first. What's a heckler? What does that entail? <laughs> well, I'll just say, as persuaders, your ability to handle a heckler is going to make or break you. This one's a huge one. And as you know, in my presentation skill courses, we bring in a heckler. We tell them from it's the National Heckling Federation. It doesn't exist. You can Google it if you want. But <laughs> this one's huge because as a presenter, all eyes are on you. And if somebody heckles you, and here's the definition, and I'm pretty broad with my definition. In politics, they call it bracketing, where they hire people to go heckle you, right? To heckle you to see what you're made of. Because if you're a politician and you lose it and you yell back and you flip them off and start using profanity, done. 
Yeah. I mean, we look at, is it Michael Richards? Isn't that Kramer from Seinfeld who was doing stand-up comic and he was getting heckled and he started throwing some racial words yeah. around? Yeah, that was ugly. And we haven't seen him since. He's just starting to get back on the map. Yeah. We see it all the time. And so the audience is sitting back going, ooh, what's happening? But to me, it could be someone talking on a cell phone, somebody sleeping and snoring, somebody asking the annoying question, someone that has a better story or a better joke, someone that's asking off the wall questions, somebody that comes in late. It could be somebody that's full of venom. And I train college students and I say, look, when you're in the boardroom, you think you're all on the same team, but I guarantee you someone in there is going to try to make you look bad when you give a presentation. And uh-huh. you're, the way you handle that, is going to make or break your ability to influence that audience. So anything that's distracting or annoying or even full of venom is a heckler. And we see it all the time. It's basically a form of teasing, right? We tease people growing up. We're looking for a reaction. And so as a presenter, you got to check your emotions at the door. I don't care if it's upset you. I don't care if it was mean. I don't care if it was false. If you lose control, if you fire back, if you get upset, you have lost your ability to influence. Hmm. So is there ever a time that it's appropriate to really smack the heckler upside the head figuratively? (laughs) Yes. Now, you have to be careful and know your audience. When the audience is on your side and it's annoying everybody in the audience, you could fight back. If there's a crying baby, you got to be careful. If there's a crying baby and it's annoying everybody, I say, bam, shut the baby up. It's driving me nuts. (laughs) Yeah. I've offended everyone, even though everyone was thinking the same thing I said. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. I'm now the bad guy. So we need to be careful on how we handle this. Let me give you a different example. I was on a webinar, and I was going. I was doing my thing. It was a four-hour webinar. It was kind of long, and I was getting going. and setting the foundation. This lady comes on and says, look, I speak for the group. When you're way off course and you're wrong, you should be talking about this and this and this. Now, my natural reaction as a human is going to be like, look, lady, <laughs> I've been studying this for 20 years. You know, I wanted to – but no, I can't because I'll lose all credibility and my ability to influence the audience. And so – I had a feeling the way she was acting. She was pretty mean, pretty vindictive. And I said, whoa, wow, I appreciate your feedback. And I said, let me open it up to the group. I said, okay, group, what do you think? And they called her some pretty mean words. <laughs> <laughs> the B words, why don't you get off the call? Why don't you do this? You don't speak for me. Who do you think you are? Yeah. She said what I was pretty much thinking, but the audience did it. Now it's okay. She hung up and we were all happy. So if the whole audience is on your side, telling someone to leave is okay. But you have to be careful. The whole audience study said you'll offend people. Or if you're in New York City. <laughs> right. <laughs> New York City is the one place where you can go, so no stupid question, get out, and people respect you more. But for the most part, unless you're in New York, you got to be careful. If the audience is on your side, you have to do it. You can't ignore it. You have to address it. If someone's having a, a heart attack or if someone's fighting, something's happened, or it's too hot or it's too cold, they're going to look to you as the presenter to fix that. Yeah. Yeah, so you can scream at him, shut up your mouth in New York. No problem, right out of the chute. Everyone else, you got to take it. He's a little more tact than that. <laughs> you know, I found it's pretty effective, too, if they keep asking a really annoying question that's really disrupting the flow. I've noticed that I can sit up there in front of the room and I can say, okay, wait, you're asking if XYZ, did I get that right? And I'll look at a few people on the front row and I'll kind of nod my head like, is he asking that? And by how they respond to me, I can tell if they're on board with this guy or not, right? If they nod their heads like, yeah, uh that's what he asked. They support what he's doing and I need to go with it and I need to address it. But if they kind of just look at me like, yeah, that's what he asked, right? (laughs) Then I can go say, hey, look, man, I know you've got a lot of questions, but we're getting off topic here. 
I've got lots more information to cover. You can come talk to me after. I think these are questions specific to you. And I can shut it down that way. That's kind of a way to take the audience's temperature to see if you have permission to slam him yet or not. It's worked well yeah. for me over the years. Got to gauge your audience. And a lot of times you can do it up front if you know you're going to get a lot of questions. Because you lose control when there's a lot of questions a lot of times. You can say, hey, I've got 60 minutes. I'm going to answer 99% of your questions. If I take questions, I won't be able to get to all my material. So let's take a vote. Do you want to do questions later then? And let me just get through my presentation. They'll all say, yeah, just do your presentation. And someone will raise your hand. I'm like, well, well, let's take a vote. Do you want me to cut out material? Or you want me to ask the questions? Let me ask the audience. <laughs> yeah. And the audience is like, well, hey, no, shut up. And they'll want you to finish. But maintaining that control, understanding how to deal with the heckler is a huge piece. In fact, my favorite story, I don't know if you've probably heard this, is Ronald Reagan, how it's on YouTube to where he was getting heckled about his age. He was getting old. He was running for president. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Remember this? It was just classic. And, and that's, he didn't get upset. He did. He just smiled and says, you know what? I'm not going to make the youth and inexperience of my opponent an issue in this race. And it just done. Smile, humor. Everybody laughed. Yeah, so you're in control. You don't let it get to you. You can use humor. You can use your audience. But you have to be in control because it can really hurt you. I was talking to a another professional speaker, and he was talking. This old man was heckling and throwing things at him. He was, it was an open bar, which increases heckling. Mm -hmm. And he says, look, if you're not going to listen, just leave. And he did. And so did everybody else. Uh-oh. Because it was the CEO <laughs> who had lost a family member earlier or something in a tragic accident or something. I don't know the whole story, but there was a tragedy there. Oh, Of course, boy. the speaker didn't know, but you got to be very careful. If you're going to slam somebody, you've got to make sure your audience is on your side or you'll lose your whole audience. That's really bad. Yeah. <laughs> I went down to California, uh, this was recently, to do a presentation. It was a two-day for a group of investors. I'm a freelance guy. You know, I do this on a 1099 basis. And apparently the company I was doing this for hadn't done a really good job of, of setting people's expectations or answering their basic questions. And this is kind of an intermediate level workshop that I was going to be teaching, right? And I get up there and, and they just start peppering me with questions about, you know, what do I do about this? What do I do about that? And I had to really, I felt like I was herding cats. I was never going to be able to get the day going. I gave the timeout sign to give in basketball where I said, timeout, everybody stop your questions. These are awesome questions. And I totally want to answer them. But we're going to be spinning our wheels, going a million different directions. And I'll tell you this, sit on your questions. Let me go through what I've got to talk about. And you are going to understand this exponentially better by the end of the day today. And if I didn't answer your question, you can ask it then. But other than that, I'm just going to be up here herding cats. Who here paid to watch somebody herd cats? You know? <laughs> and they all laughed, okay, okay, you know, calm down the mood. So. Yeah, you got to address it, say that, or say, I got to create a foundation before we get to that, but I will answer your questions. You have to acknowledge their questions and say, that's a great question, interesting point. Thanks for bringing that up. I'm going to get to that later. However you want to address that, but if you let that continue and just let them control the whole conversation, you would have lost them and your ability to influence. Yeah, yeah, you got to take control of, of the room for sure. Kurt, you have a pretty good blunder uh, that involves a bathroom and a microphone and not turning that microphone off. Yeah, <laughs> well, don't, don't, don't. Well, there's Homer, there's the blunder. I'll be the blunder this week. I'm okay with that. As a professional speaker and as a trainer, I'll do anything from a five-day to a 60-minute presentation. And one of the things I do teach on is influencing charisma and sales and presentation skills. And one thing I want to bring up with presentation skills, people are so 
afraid to make a mistake. And I say, look, you will. That's part of it. Mm-hmm. And you're more human when you make a mistake. You will make mistakes. And I say, you'll never make bigger mistakes than I have. <laughs> In fact, let me give you a few of my greatest blunders. I'll just put it out there. I am human. And the one you mentioned, it was one of my first speaking engagements. I was a hired gun. And I like to pace. I'm a pacer. Get those butterflies to fly in formation. Right? I'm pacing around. And they wired me up with the microphone, the lavalier, and I had 10 minutes to go. And and I was just pacing. I was like, man, I have time to go to the restroom because i got to speak for a couple hours. i got to go to the restrooms. And I didn't know the mic was live when I flushed the toilet and went <laughs> And it broadcast to the whole room. And I came back, and everyone's kind of looking at me, snickering. And I, someone pulled me and said, you know, your microphone's on. <laughs> I don't know if I was whistling while I was there or what was going on, but they, they heard everything. <laughs> that could have been and, so much worse. Yeah, and I, I remember I was talking to someone who was – he was wired, and someone came in. And he said, did you see the lump on that guy's head? And that was broadcast. That wasn't very good. Oh, boy. I was speaking to a group of 1,000. I think these are high school students. And I had these lights in my eyes. They were recording it. And the problem with lights in your eyes, you can't see if everyone's still there. And you can't see the end of the stage. Yeah. So I fell – I flipped up and landed on my back on, when I fell off the stage, and that really hurt. But I had to keep going. <laughs> Someone introduced me. I'm running out. I tripped and fell. I've done that before. I was seven hours into an eight-hour presentation, took a drink of water, and went down the wrong pipe. I was tired, and it sprayed the whole front row. <laughs> okay. So I've done these things, and it's part of it. It's how you handle it. It's actually good to one point because you're more real depending on how you handle it. Now, if I get upset and start throwing out profanity and doing these other things, that that's important how you handle that, but you will make mistakes, and that's okay. You just smile, you just move on, you go with it. Yeah, I go on and on in my personal blunders and, and what I've said, not said. I can tell you things, big blunders, that things that I've said in other countries and other cultures and other languages that was very offensive that I didn't know. <laughs> I'm a lot better at doing my research. Gestures on stage are great in some countries and very offensive than others. So it's just doing your research, getting out there, realizing you're making a few mistakes and Hey, I'll be the blunder. But the big picture is you'll make some blunders on stage. You'll never give that perfect presentation and just put yourself out there. And every time you're going to improve, you become more influential. And when you could match these presentation skills, become a persuasive presenter, your income's unlimited. Bingo. I love it. Well, Kurt, anything else before we wrap it up and uh, finish our series on presentation skills? Learn how to present. When you can engage an audience, when you can captivate an audience, when you can influence an audience, whether it's a webinar, one-on-one, over the phone, in a big group, I said, your income is not only unlimited, but you can change lives. You can do what you need to do. A lot of people, well, I'm nervous, I'm afraid, I'm scared. Hey, get over it. Get out there. If you want upward mobility in a corporation, you want to increase your income, you want to become more charismatic, your presentation skills are key. Sounds good. Thanks so much, everybody, for listening. Send us your comments, your questions, your derogatory remarks to MaximizeYourInfluence at gmail.com, and we will catch you next week. See you next week. 